This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane You are listening to 3RRR. A massive thank you to the doctors. They're all hurting out of the other studio as we speak, heading for their Ferraris. But uh, us Toronto driving scientists are now in control. Speak for yourself. I'm a cyclist. <laughs> Good morning, Dr. Crystal. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You do own a car, though, because I've seen you. I do own a car, but I prefer to ride a bike. You have a car for ornamental purposes? Really? Well, only for... (laughs) Well, I have to say, I can be a little bit of a fair-weather cyclist, so sometimes when it's raining... We've noticed that. Yeah, but today, sunny day, beautiful day for the bike. Yeah. And the lycra. Chris KP, heard your voice. How are you? you yeah, well? good. Yeah, I thought I'd just cheap in there without an introduction. Yeah, no, that's good. That's fine. That's what we expect from you. We, <laughs> no rules, no um, <laughs> no control, no, you know, preparation. It, mm, it's, mm. it's all good. Now, Dr. Lauren was uh, going to be in the studio with us, but unfortunately, mm. she's got what I call the, you may have eaten too much fruit syndrome. Oh, and really? And a little unwell. Does she need to rehydrate rather a lot? I suspect so. Mm. So anyway, she's... Get well uh, soon, Dr. Lauren. Yes, hello to Dr. Lauren if but she's all, listening. But it's also a really good... Uh, it's a lovely day for a cycle and a good day for the runs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. All right, uh, let's get into some science news before Chris gets us too far <laughs> off topic. Uh, Chris KP, we might start with you. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure, if you want. Um, so... I I read an interesting headline in in I don't remember now one of the one of the popular science website thingies um, and what I what I what jumped out at me was that it was, seemed like an outrageous claim. This was a claim that this guy had essentially caught cancer from a tapeworm, uh, and on further inspection of the actual article in the New Journal, uh, New England Journal of Medicine, it is in fact uh, something of a uh, of an overstatement. The story goes: this guy turned up in a hospital. Can, in, can I just can yeah. I just add to this story yeah, sure. that you and Crystal have been punching it out on this story for the last fifteen minutes prior <laughs> to the show, and Liv and I were sitting here going, "Is this ever going to stop?" Yeah, conversations about um, tapeworms that that come up, <laughs> conversations about diarrhea should not be just as punching anything out. Um, but now that you have, uh, we have to go with it. Uh, so, yeah, so this guy turns up in 2013 in a hospital. He, he's already been diagnosed with HIV. He's very ill. He has a severely compromised immune system. Um, at, and he had this all manner of sy- uh, symptoms. He mm-hmm. has various growths and tumours and all kinds of problems. He's lost a lot of weight. He's a very unwell individual. Um, sadly, sometime later, he died. And when they were examining his body, they found very unusual cells in his lungs. Unusual because initially they were just going, these are really small. And then on further examination, they realised that they weren't human. Oh. He actually had other cells, non-human cells, growing inside his lungs. Interesting. Turned out that these cells were actually tapeworm cells. Um, but it's not quite that simple. The kind of tapeworm he had is actually extremely common and it can live its entire life cycle inside your intestine. It can, it can, the whole everything can happen inside there and that's pretty much where it stays normally. Yep, you don't normally expect to find a tapeworm in your lungs. That's a bad day. <laughs> that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's a pretty grim morning you've had right there. So, so whether yeah. they normally hang in the gut, is that right, or elsewhere? Intestines, yeah, small yeah, intestines. So just, fact, so just in the gut area, that's yeah. where they they like to. And be. they do everything. So basically, they can they can they can do their whole. They can grow up, you know, in and around the villi in your cells. They can come mm. out through the mucosa and they do the whole life cycle in your gut, and that's it. Mm. The only reason that these cell cells ended up where they did at all is because he had a really compromised immune right. system. Uh, and it turns out the other interesting thing that uh, the Dr. Chris and I were talking about earlier is that the other weird thing about this is that we actually weren't sure that invertebrates could, in fact have cancer, that it was even a thing that happened in tapeworms. Mm. And that's what these cells are from. They're not just from tapeworm cells randomly. These tapeworms actually had cancerous cells. So just just a, a point of clarity there, because I, I didn't know this, but all the worm research that goes on in the world, and there's a lot of it, mm. none of it on cancer? 
Oh, well, you've got to remember or? that cancer basically just means uncontrolled proliferation. Mm. So it's a cell that is now dividing and growing in a way that um, is abnormal and is no longer regulated by normal cellular mm. processes. So, so the, 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 so previously we didn't know that invertebrates like tapeworms, mm. Mm. this could act, this genetic abnormality that causes cancer could happen in a tapeworm. Right. And so basically, I think I mean, this is what Chris and I were debating vigorously we before were. we went to we air. Were. I just went to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> was that these these cells of the tapeworm um, uh, had got, are abnormal. They, they had some kind of genetic defect which then allowed them to become cancer-like and to mm. grow anywhere else. And, the, yeah. and that the person didn't have cancer. They were just a, a framework they or a were, scaffold. Yeah, they were a scaffold, essentially, yeah. So this, and this is the important message here to note, is that this is, this is only because of a really weird and reasonably terrifying set of circumstances that you've got um, a tapeworm that has cells that are doing this inside a guy whose immune system is really shot, which is mm. the only reason mm. they survived and got... To, uh, preview, in, in any other situation, you'd imagine immune system would go, what on earth is that? Tapeworm cell, yep. sort that out immediately. It's only because his body couldn't do that they even got into his system enough to get to it, out of his intestine to his lungs and then grew. So he didn't get cancer. He was just hosting, um, you know, an invertebrate's cancer. Generous, mm. really. It's interesting. So one, one of the things I find curious there is, was there always an expectation or, or lack thereof that invertebrates wouldn't get cancer? I mean, when, when I hear all the time how genetically close they are to us and every other mm. animal in the world... Why would they? Why would we expect them not to get this sort of uncontrolled growth? Is, was that the the normal thinking, it, or was it just that they had found? Is it, it how long they live for? I mean, they don't last long enough to sort of produce loads and loads and loads of cells like humans do. I, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I'm wondering if maybe that's. I think part maybe of it just comes back to what you've just said: is that it was an incredibly unique set of yeah. circumstances. Yeah. That, mm. that where else would you observe that? And 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 not that we hadn't looked for it. It's just that we hadn't seen it. Mm. Um, and, and without knowing much more about the, the exact genetic defect, because the other thing is that that the genetic defect that these cells had, I, I haven't I haven't seen what it was particularly. No, me either. But um, uh, but it may but it may be that that you would just never observe it because it was in such an immune-compromised right. individual. In the, that the two quite unique things had to mm. happen, that, that, mm. that you would have this uh, spontaneous genetic uh, abnormality arise in the tapeworm in the first place and that it would be in an individual for whom that could then um, uh, manifest. Because normally, if it was someone like you or I, Dr Shane, our immune systems would go, no, nah, not having that, Goodbye. gone. Yep. Yeah. Mm. So, exactly. Um, Interesting. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. So, but I think, I think the moral of the story there is don't a moral fall, to a don't fall for clickbait science website yeah. headlines. Always ask for evidence yeah. and want to know what, because, you know, find, the headline, the man contracts cancer from tapeworm. <laughs> yeah. It's actually, when you dig a little bit deeper, isn't quite the case. And if, yeah. if we knew that everyone was going to dig deeper, it'd be fine. But we know that a lot of people don't dig deeper. Yeah. And I have to I have to say, this, this for many years has been one of my bugbears with regards to the general media. And I call it just lazy reporting to grab grab and use those sorts of headlines instead of just spending an extra five minutes and coming up with one that's interesting. Because you can do it, mm. but, you know, I mean, Incredible in the, the way you've gone through that story, there's so many interesting elements yeah. of that story that could give it the appropriate headline. But, oh, no, we have to have to give it the cheap and nasty one that, that drags in, you know, an audience that won't, won't necessarily care about that 
the fact that there's a big inaccuracy. And that becomes a self-perpetuating problem too. Mm. People then start expecting the cheap, easy answer rather mm. than the interesting, you know, intellectual one. Though I have to say my favourite headline of this week in a, in a science-based uh, uh, publication, um, IFLS, IF Love Science, yep. um, was um, ancient bones show that rodents of unusual size did exist. <laughs> Which was my absolute favourite headline of the week. So, so sometimes some websites do get it right. I want to read that. Um, Dr. <laughs> Crystal, what do you got for us? Well, I, I'm actually continuing on the story of, of, of cancer and cancer therapy. Oh, thank um, goodness. I thought you were going to say tapeworms. No, no, nothing to do with tapeworms, <laughs> but, but very much to do with the immune system in cancer because for mm. the first time, um, a new gene editing technique has been used to save someone's life. Which is extraordinary. Absolutely yeah. extraordinary. Um, and so there was a, a, a wonderful science story in the in the press this week about how a cellular medicine, a new therapy that's based on, on, on living human cells has been used to rescue a baby girl who had life-threatening leukaemia. So this was a one-year-old girl um, who was in a London hospital with acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. So it's a cancer of the, of the blood cells and it's a cancer of the immune cells in the blood. Mm. Um, and all the conventional treatment has failed in, the, in this very small, tiny, sick girl who was very, very ill. And so the doctors at Great Ormond Street Hospital were looking for an answer. They were like, well, the field of cancer therapy and cancer therapeutics has advanced rapidly in the, in the last few years. There must be something out there that we could try to save this girl. And so they approached a French biotech company who were developing a new therapy based on human cells. And, and this is the future of medicine where, 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 where cells rather than molecules will be given um, as, as medicines. And so these particular cells are called CAR T cells. So they're T mm -hmm. cells, T cells being a normal cell in your immune system that fights cancer, um, but they've been genetically altered and that they have a chimeric antigen receptors and that's what the car bit comes from and they're called car t cells and um and they're very they're, they're kind of like a sophisticated form of cell transplant and this is kind of building on what we already do to treat leukemia because you you, you might remember that bone marrow bone transplants marrow. Yep. Are, are very mm. are, are one of the um interventions mm. to treat cancer and essentially a bone marrow transplant is really just an immune system cell transplant and so so being able to then take out and so say rather than doing the entire bone marrow how about we just do the cells that work and how about we actually tweak those cells mm. genetically before we put them in to turn them into cells that can actually um, do the job better and more efficiently in a more targeted way. So what they what the what the um what the therapy is, they take these T cells and they modify them um, by actually changing their specificity so that the T cells are honed in to specifically attack a particular receptor molecule that's on the surface of cancer cells, and that's called CD19. So, so you've got all these cancer cells that make lots of this CD19 as a marker on the surface of the cell that says, hi, we're a cancer cell. Mm. Um, and then you train these T cells that you use as the therapy to specifically attack that. And so the cells go, where is it? Where is it? Oh, there's the CD19, kill that one. Um, but the other thing is that, and you know, with any transplant, is always the difficulty that it will be recognised as foreign mm. and rejected. Yes. And so up until now, a lot of these CAR T-cell or, or, or um, T-cell therapies for cancer have been personalised, where you actually take the patient's own cells, um, change them in the dish to be souped up cancer cells and then put them back. But so they're recognised as self. Yeah, so they're recognised as self, so you overcome that problem. So it's a self-donation. But this little girl was too sick for that. She mm. didn't have any T-cells to give. So they said, well, can we use T-cells that are off the shelf? Mm. And can we edit them and, and turn off the, the proteins that, that make them recognised as foreign? And to do that, you need some very, very clever molecular scissors. And that's where the breakthrough technology has been. It's a new gene editing tool called Talon, and it's tunable. You can tune this 
um, this gene editing tool to cut exactly where you want to in, in, the, in the genome. You can say, find this sequence and when you find it, cut it out. Mm. And so that's what they did with these immune cells. They cut out the bit that made them recognised as foreign. So when they were donated into the little girl, her immune, her, she didn't recognise them as foreign. And so they turned off some genes and then and so they put them in and a month later, she's, she's doing very well. Mm. And apparently she then had a second bone marrow transplant on top of that and is now looking to make a recovery. Extraordinary. I mean, this, this is one of those areas where I have to say there's been a lot of promise for a long time with, you know, to be fair, not a huge amount of results that are tangible, especially if you're a person suffering from cancer and, you know, you hear about all this great research, but you go, well, where's my treatment? Well, it's not ready yet, you know. Absolutely. And so this is, this is one of those examples where I have to say long-term investment. And this sort, of, this sort of stuff is a long-term game. It's 20, 30 years, but it has, well, in fact, if we go back to you know, Watson and Crick. It's more than 20 or 30 years. It's half a century. But boy, is that a payoff, especially for this family and, and no doubt for many others given the success. And I actually think we are actually just at that point. I've been to a couple of mm. research seminars recently that have started to talk about the fact that we might be at the beginning of the end of cancer, cancer. and actually yeah. turning mm. cancer wow. into a manageable chronic disease, a bit in the same as HIV. Like yeah. when, when HIV used to be a death sentence and then we've come up mm. with all these amazing mm. therapeutics to not, not get rid of it, but to hold it at bay. To hold it at bay. And it may yeah. be that the new generation of cancer therapeutics are able to do that as well. Mm. Mm. I remember, I think about a year ago, I said, we, we had some guests on talking about HIV and I said this was one of the areas where I could actually see being on the show in 20 years and no longer talking about it. And I think cancer might be getting into that game soon as well, hopefully. But so, this is a damn good start. Absolutely. And it just goes to show that very basic discoveries like finding an enzyme in a bacteria that you can tune to cut different bits of DNA. Makes a difference. Who cares about that, actually? <laughs> Fast forward five years yeah. and it's yeah. just saved a girl's life. Yeah, fantastic. Um, now, one of the things that came out on Thursday was the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society's Annual Attribution Report. Now, this is something I wasn't. <gasps> really aware of. But, um, now, that's not a headline I'd click on. Oh, there's... <laughs> I reckon I would, though. Sad, well, isn't it? <laughs> you know, there's this whole new field. That, and, and I have to say, you know, I was quite ignorant of this. I'm sure people who are well into climate change issues are aware of it, this field of extreme event attribution. So this is this idea of, you know, every time, you know, the wind gusts more than 50 kilometres per hour, someone says, oh, there you go, that's climate change for you. <laughs> Now, the reality is, though, this isn't a very scientific claim. And so what you really want to be doing is saying, OK, can we actually connect the dots from A to B? And can we do it scientifically rather than just saying, oh, you know, three hurricanes lined up across the Pacific this year? Well, that's climate change. Because we just, you know, we have to be scientific about this. And if you want people to believe the science of climate change, which is extremely solid, then these claims that are being made post that acceptance to be have to solid. be as solid scientifically. Yeah. And that's what this whole field of extreme event attribution is about. And so what the report indicates is um, it looks at a number of um, different events and it, it essentially assigns um, whether or not there is a clear impact or connection between uh, the warming of the world and these particular events. And it would surprise you which ones are well-connected and which ones are not. And so the ones that are, seem to be very well-connected are ones that they would call sort of heat-related events. So these are sort of more mundane in a way. So like Australia's heat wave last year, you know, in, or this year actually, I think it was, what was it, in May or something, you know, this one they can connect quite well to changing climate. 
But other events are much harder to pinpoint a connection. So, for example, um, the droughts that have occurred in East Africa and the Middle East, um, you know, these intense bushfires that have occurred in California, um, you know, some of the storms across the US that have occurred, these, these things are very hard to connect to climate change. And the reason primarily is that they're extremely complex events mm. in themselves. With a, so, series, with a whole bunch of different factors <clears> at the start. A whole bunch of, of different yeah. factors leading to them. So which of those factors are affected? Now, one thing that we know from climate change is there are a range of things that will be more likely or more intense. These things I've just talked about are in that grouping, but that doesn't mean that these ones that have happened in the last 12 months have been influenced by climate change. And this is the jump mm. that these guys are being very careful mm. not to make. So they're saying, okay, which ones can we really cleanly connect and which ones can't? And that's what this report is about. And I think it's 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 really, um, it's quite fascinating which ones are, um, are very, very well connected. So I mentioned the heat wave in May in Australia. Um, this, this is the, the sort of connection they make. Apparently it, it was 23 times more likely that we would get this heat wave as a result of global warming than normal. So that's not, you know, it doesn't mean 100% that's there. It just means, you know, in a warmer world, it's 23 times more likely that you'll have a really warm May and that's, that's than a in a normal really, world. That's a really good way to understand it. Yeah. It and, really is. And so, you know, if, just think of it, you know, in terms of years, you know, over a 23-year period, you know, there's a there's a big chance with the warming world that mm. 23 of those years are going to be going to be warm relative to one without it. So twenty three times more 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 important. So it's um anyway. There's a whole lot of uh, well something like that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> twenty three times more likely in a given year. One yeah, twenty three chance. No, because twenty three times more likely is more likely than it would have been under. So if it would well, have happened one in a hundred times, it's going to be twenty three times more of one in a hundred. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor Shane. Let's, let's try and get our maths correct here. Is that right? Yeah, yes, I think about that, that during right. the break. Um, well, anyway. <laughs> Let's, just, let's just trust us. Let's not go to 100. <laughs> let's say in a given year, the chance in that year of it happening is 23 times more likely. That's, 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 a, that's, that's a, a better, better yeah, way. That's a mess. So, yeah, so, right? That's true. You can't, you can't compete with that. Um, so anyway, there's, there's a whole lot of these. Um, there is a whole lot of these, <laughs> these, these events that have to be linked up. And that's what this field is doing. And I think it's doing it... Um, it's, it, it's interesting that it's, it's being done in such an evidence-based way as opposed to what the media are tending to do at the moment. It's very popular to say all these things are connected with climate change, well, but from a scientific basis, the connections have to be made and, and in, I've a, seen, in a literal sense. I've seen the, the converse as well. I've seen plenty of, uh, of conservative com commentators quite recently saying, you know, oh, I know they're claiming this is climate change and that's climate change, and it just fuels this ridiculous debate yeah, yeah. Um, without any actual reference to the underlying causes, mm. which, as you say, are based on very, very solid and science. And I think then having that evidence-based allow us to be um, more predictive about what we might expect yes. into the future and how to plan for that and how to be resilient towards those changes that are now more likely yeah, yeah. that yep. have been established through an evidence base. Yep. And one of the things you have to watch here, of course, is when you're talking about any weather events, there are always scenarios where you get extremes that sit right on the edge of the bell curve of weather for any part of the world. So there will have been events that look like this. There will have been events that look oh, like that. Oh, I remember that. back in 1905 yeah. we had one of those. And we, we have those in our, our historical... <laughs> God, you're looking good <laughs> to your age. For age yeah. <laughs> uh, but we have these in our historical record. And so you always get the naysayers comparing to that. So if you can't make the literal connection, then you have to be careful you know, in doing that. But um, but it is, it's disturbing when you read the list from this report of things that we know climate change will increase or make worse. And even though some of the things that they've said we can't connect 
um, you know, they haven't been able to connect those particular items. They are still in that list. So things like fire, fires and so forth are in that list, even though these ones this year in California haven't been connected. That doesn't mean they won't be. Yeah. It just means today, yeah. current modelling, et cetera, et cetera, hasn't connected them. It doesn't mean those fires in this year won't be as the, the sort of stuff evolves. So it's a very interesting field. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We have our first guest already in the studio. Her name is Jane Eliff. She is from the, the University of Melbourne. She's a principal researcher in the Quantitative and Applied Ecology Group, part of the School of Biosciences and a member of the Centre of Excellence for Biosecurity Risk Analysis. Welcome to the studio, Jane. Nice to be here. Now, you have um, picked up a little award over the last uh, few uh, days, um, the Frank Fenner Prize for Life Scientist of the Year, which is one of the PM's Science Awards. Mm. Tell us a bit about this. is an incredible accolade for you. Yes, it was an absolute delight to get it. Um, this is one of six prizes, and mm. I think you might be talking to the primary school teacher next year. Yes, week, and next week we yeah. are. We are very excited yeah, about yeah. that. Yeah, it's yep. nice. I award them to scientists and teachers, and mm. this one is for someone in the life sciences, and it's particularly for someone within 10 years of finishing their PhD. Okay. Mm. Now, now, tell us how you go about getting that award. You have to be nominated by a colleague or something, I assume? That's right, yes. For, for, yes. for a particular piece of work you've done or your overall contribution yeah, to the field? Yes. So it's my overall contribution for the field and they're interested in both the research and the impact of that research. Mm. Now, we were talking just um, before and Dr Crystal noticed uh, that you're the 11th most cited author worldwide over the past 10 years in your particular field. Mm. That's wow. A, that's and the only woman. And in, that, in, <laughs> yeah. in the highest ranked. Again, wow. Well, no, that's a bit sad. It's great that... Now, uh, this is not a small field. No, it's not a small field, and and um, yeah, this, I guess because the area I work in, um, the applications are very broad, and they're in a lot of demand. Um, mm. The research does get quite a lot of notice, and so yeah, it's been. I've particularly worked in the area where I'm trying to translate between ecologists and practitioners mm. and statisticians and computer scientists. So yeah. I've I've sort of found a little niche where in the middle, yeah, I really like working in, and it's been picked up well. Now, what I want to do here is something sort of in reverse. Normally, we talk about the research first and the applications last, but we want to focus on your research. So let's get the applications out of the way. Sure. What sort of things uh, happen as a result of your research in terms of farming and, and so forth? Give us a couple of examples of the sorts of things that, you know, people, changes people make. Sure. So, so I work in models that explain why species are where they are and they can be mm -hmm. used for all of biodiversity. And so they're, they're of use both for ecologists to think about things and to ask questions, but they're also useful in applications like um, if we want to predict where a rare species might be through a landscape, we can map it and, and map where it's most likely to be and then survey towards the places where it's most likely to be that we haven't ever seen it. Um, or we might, in conservation planning, want to know where a whole lot of species are so we can make a, a good decision um, where we're trying to trade off a whole lot of land uses. So, mm -hmm. so the fact that you can map predictions from these models is actually a key thing. Okay. And this, in terms of, I suppose, in terms of looking at species and which ones can be saved, which ones can't be saved, what what environmental factors go into that? That's right. you, you do the, the whole suite? Yes, yes. So, so um, these can be applied to any species. It might be fish in the ocean, it mm -hmm. might be fish in rivers, birds, mammals, trees. Uh, and so, um, yeah, any applications are possible. I, I tend to be work on the modelling side, but then 
you know, I'm drawn into the applications because yeah. I like them. They're, they're interesting. And they're, right, let's dive into the modelling because that's okay. the part I want to talk about. So well, let's start with fish in the ocean. I mean, how do you go about modelling the impacts on something like fish in the ocean? I mean, mathematically, what does that look like? Mm. This seems like an extraordinary, this seems like the weather to me in terms of complexity. Right, yes, and, and it can be. Um, there can Very complex models can be made of those ecosystems. So the models I work with, though, are the almost the sort of vanilla, the, the first, the first okay. um, stage. So they're statistical models. They're looking at the relationship between one thing and things that can predict it. So mm -hmm. if you go and measure how many fish are in various parts of the ocean and then you can get estimates of the environmental conditions there, so what's the sea temperature, what's the salinity, what's the pressure, whatever you think is going to affect that species, then you can make a regression model essentially between the things you've observed and the things that can predict it. Hmm. So, 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 I mean, what, what does that look like in, in reality? This is this is computer modelling. It's mm -hmm. based on on what sort of mathematics and so forth. I mean, what, how do mm. you how do you how do you do that in you know on yep. the computer and so forth? Yep. So these are standard models that you'd use anywhere. So um, med medical people use them, um, mm -hmm. all sorts of things, and they're the you know they're the extension of the simple linear regression models that people will learn in um, year twelve maths. Um, you're right. We there, there are both. There are two different things. So there's um, mathematical programs that there's statistical, statistical programs where we can fit those models, or there are some sort of interface-driven pieces of software where mm. people who perhaps don't want to write code can yep. actually just use an interface-driven thing and make the models. Um, and that's you know the fact that they're fairly bro broadly available to people who may not have statistical background ha is both great and scary with it some yeah, big <laughs> problems. There's, there's a lot of uses where people pick them up and really want to use them because mm. they've got a pressing application. You know they're trying to save tigers mm. in in Malaysia, um, but they it's you know it's sometimes hard to understand how to mm. do it properly. So I've I've been quite keen on working at that interface, trying to explain what the models need and what they're assuming and what you've got to be careful about. Uh, I mean, in terms of the models you're using, mm. I remember doing modelling myself when you mm -hmm. back in my physics days, and yep. and the initial conditions, you know, just were everything. Yes. I mean, how important is that in this sort of regression model? Are you able to? Add in information as the model progresses to tweak it, or is it you know yeah. start things off and just see yeah. how it plays? So these actually these are just basically pattern-based models, so mm. they're correlations. Um, yep. So you were talking before in climate change about causation. Mm. These actually can't get at causation. They right. look at correlations. Okay. Um, they might suggest causation. You might then be able to go and test things about causation, but these are just plain pattern-based models yep. and. Um, and as a result of that, they're, they're, you know, challenging it sometimes to work out is the pattern I'm seeing something that's just slightly strange and something mm. I can't measure mm. or is it actually what is really affecting the distribution of the species? Yeah. I think, yeah. I think I mean, just for clarity for people, the mm. difference between causation and correlation, mm. uh, the number of petal pops I've been consuming has actually gone up in step with climate change. <laughs> That's correlation. <laughs> Not this. It could be causation. I, I don't say, know. That'd, um, that'd be an interesting area of inquiry. Now that we've seen the correlation, we can explore the link. But I think the difference is very strong. Chris, yeah. you want to talk? I, I was going to ask um, that. So, in your career, um, looking at, uh, at at essentially the same broad concepts, mm. but the technology has changed enormously in that time. Yeah. Does it? Well, tell us about that, I guess. But does it look different? What does it look and feel like in in you know, when you when you go to work in the morning? Is it different now than when you started? Yes, well, that's interesting. So I started in the late 1990s. <laughs> uh, and uh, look, there's, 
I guess I use freely available software programs mm -hmm. that back then weren't so well developed and now are much more broadly used right throughout the world. And that's actually an excellent thing because it means that people can share code and packages and mm. all sorts and build on each other's... Is, is that a computing power thing or an interface thing? Is it Does it look uh, more attractive and more more user-friendly or is it just there's actually more grunt behind the uh, behind the screen? I think it's actually both, yeah. Okay. And... and um, but also, I think um, ecologists have become very interested in machine learning and computer science. Mm -hmm. And so we, we've picked up um, models from statistics, but we've also picked up models from machine learning. And, and with large amounts of data and with lots of computing power, you can actually make models for, um, with massive amounts of data now and predict mm -hmm. globally at quite fine resolutions. So, you know, we can make maps across the world at a one kilometre grid cell resolution. That's cool. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's pretty cool. That's quite cool. <laughs> Jane, for someone who's one of the most highly cited um, environmental scientists in the world, you haven't had a very traditional career pathway. And there's a lot of discussion at the moment about uh, women in science. And I was wondering, you know, if you could maybe share some of your journey to where you are today. Yes, and in fact, you know, I guess this is one of the things that's one of the pleasures talking about this because I think um, it's easy to feel when you're starting off that um, the only way I'm going to have a successful career is if I, you know, do the typical thing. So I'm a student and then I go straight to a PhD and I do something else. And mine it has been quite different. So I did undergrad in agricultural science, worked for a couple of years, left and had kids and stayed away for 12 years, came back so and you did your more. original training in the 1970s? I did. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I have to say, I'm stunned you remember it. Because like <laughs> for me, well, that well, gap, What were you doing I, in the 70s? No, <laughs> I, I, I forgot. A lot. I just, my my memory's bad. I, well, I, would, I would have come back and thought, geez, I don't remember any no, of this. No, well, it, it, it certainly is. It was tough. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that motivated me was I came back and I thought, I actually have to ask questions all the time mm. now. I can't remember everything. And also I was swapping fields. So I actually turned from agricultural science to environmental science and did my PhD in environmental yeah. science and had to learn statistics and mm. GIS. And so I think um, you just learn that the best way to learn quickly is to ask questions. And if you're looking a bit silly, it just actually doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, that's have, the maturity yeah. you came back yes. with, which which most scientists learn as they, as they go through their career. And maybe, you know, it, some of them at the point of associate professor might actually have worked that out. But, but yeah. you know, for you to come back with that attitude mm. um, probably, you know, pushed you a lot further. I think uh, did, did, did you get any stick at all from the, the sort of university sector at the time saying, oh, you know, do we still count this course? It was so long ago. I mean, was there any of that or did they just mm. say, oh, you've done a degree of us, that's worth a lot? Well, actually, it was the latter and it was quite right. delightful, really. In fact, one of the people who was um, a lecturer in my undergrad was still at the university and was the person doing oh, converting the marks into current day equivalent and so when I applied for scholarships <laughs> yeah, I was I was amazed and it really was a good experience that yeah. I that I could start again. Um, one of the funny things when I was doing my PhD was people would quite often say to me, it's really good that you're doing your PhD. And I'd think, why are they so serious about it? And then I'd suddenly realise actually I'm quite old for doing this. And you know, I think you you don't necessarily think about it yourself and you just do it. And um, but it, yeah, it's been a great experience and I've been mm. very well accepted in oh, Look, uh, you know, it's it's great hearing about this stuff, and I and I love the fact that your work sits between that that the modelling and the application, mm. because mm. this is just what we were talking about before. That someone has to apply the hard science, the hard evidence base to these things. You can't just take the outputs of these, you know, these models and say, oh well, that you know, there you go. That's right. Someone has to look it into into it deep. Congratulations um, from all of us for winning the Frank Fenner Prize for Life Scientist of the Year. This is no small feat. It is an amazing accolade. And for being the 11th most cited author in the world. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know what your goal is for next year. 
<laughs> top 10. <laughs> top 10. Um, Jane, it was an absolute pleasure having you in the studio. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to us. Thanks very much for having me. Jane Eilith is Principal Researcher in the Quantitative Applied Ecology Group and part of the School of Biosciences and a member of the Centre of Excellence for Biosecurity Risk Analysis at the University of Melbourne. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We do have our second guest for today in the studio. Dr Nathan Quadros is from the CRC for Spatial Information. Nathan, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you guys are doing some really interesting thing and things and what we wanted to talk about today was your mapping exposure to sea level rise program um, and this, this sort of covers, I guess, the Pacific Islands and the range of different areas around the world. But it has been singled out as, um, well, I'll get you to tell us, but it's been singled out for an international accolade, which is quite extraordinary um, by the United Nations. So tell us, first of all, what is this project that you're doing? Um, and then we'll get on to the award that it's won. Yeah, we were fortunate enough to work with the Australian government, um, with the Pacific Island nations as well. So we were involved in the early days in mapping Pacific Islands. They wanted mm -hmm. to know in 3D what their islands look like and mm -hmm. then which areas are low-lying and which areas are susceptible to flooding. So we work with Samoa, Vanuatu, PNG, uh, Tonga as well. And we got planes there, we flew all these islands, got 3D models of these islands, and then we've been trying to communicate this information to the communities and the government there using online map tools like Google Maps and Google Earth. Mm -hmm. So rather than usually they get a lot of training in, with documents and things yep, like that yep. and policies, really creating quite visual and simple mm. tools that people can interact with, load up. Um, they've got online access now that's quite good at most of these islands. are connected to um, higher-speed internet. So they're able to access this information through map-based tools. And so they've recognised this, um, the United Nations, um, the communication of this sort of information through maps is quite an achievement and the way we've been able to engage the community with sea mm. level rise. Well, it's, it's extraordinary. And, you, and you've won an award from the United Nations um, for doing this. Yeah, I, that's quite extraordinary, although we did nominate ourselves. <laughs> you <laughs> nothing, nothing wrong with that, mate. Nothing wrong with that. No. A lot of people doing that. But we did work with a number of organisations. We worked with the Australian Government, Geoscience Australia. We had a, a number of partners who, um, a company called Dublin who flew the island. We had others, NGIS Australia, who did a lot of the training. So mm. we're a research centre. We have a lot of partners that we work with and universities to enable these sorts of activities. Mm. So now it's called the Lighthouse Award and my understanding is that there are 16 referred to as game-changing initiatives around the world um, that were announced as, as winners of this by the United Nations Climate Change Group and, and, and yours was one of them. Let, let's dive in a bit to the actual, how, how, how the process works. I mean, when you say you, you're flying over these islands and so forth, what are you using to map them? Is this just photography or is it radar or is it, how are you getting the 3D maps? Yeah, my background is in something slightly different called LiDAR. Mm, um, right. So yeah. it uses uh, light scanners mm -hmm. and we also use aerial imagery there. And it creates billions of points essentially. And we load up those points on the computer and we can get those 3D models of those sorts of islands. And look, you can use it for a number of applications, but it's the only application which sees through vegetation. Radar mm -hmm. and aerial imagery yep. can't see through vegetation. Because these islands are heavily blanketed by vegetation, that wouldn't be appropriate. And so LiDAR is able to do that. The lasers are able to penetrate um, trees and that sort of thing. So we can really get to those low-lying elevations where a lot of people are living mm. and then model 
the water on top of that, what that will look like in the next sort of 100 and, years. And what wavelength are the lasers you're using? Is it within the visual? <laughs> no, no, you don't have to give it to me in nanometers where you can. Um, but is, is it in the visual range or is it outside of that? Is this like um, outside of um, the sort of normal sort of range that people well, see? only because you asked about the nanometers. <laughs> give it to me. The, the land-based one is infrared 1064 nanometers. Yeah, 1064. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Good nice. old 1064. Yeah. 1064 go right through your hand. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we also use one to measure the seafloor. So we use a green laser there. Mm. It penetrates the seafloor and we can so, get across the reef. So, so essentially, essentially what you're saying is that if I was uh, sunbaking naked on the beach, it wouldn't show up in your images. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> what are you, are you referring to your whole self or just parts of you? Just my hands. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, that's a good question. Are there privacy issues about this kind of yeah. scanning? Oh, See how things can get off track? Oh, very quickly. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I think it's a good question. <laughs> the planes aren't able to pick that up. But... Maybe in 10, 20 years, you never know. You might have to watch out. Okay. Yeah. Good so, um, so it's, so it's incredibly topical um, this week with um, Bill Shorten, the opposition leader, visiting these nations to talk about um, some mm. of the impacts that they're experiencing. What's been the feedback? You said that people have been... A, I mean, I love the fact that you've made these um, this information accessible. You're enabling communities to make decisions about their own, uh, their, own um, their own livelihoods. You know, What's been the response from people who are at the receiving end of this? information? I find the difference is, particularly in Australia, we talk about it a lot and I noticed before you're talking about heat waves and things like that, but it's hard to touch. I mm. really find the islanders are in touch with it. We, yep. We've looked at areas where people are living in water constantly. They're building up the roads at 20 centimetres a year just outside Nukualofa, just outside... 20 centimetres um, a year? Tonga. Just yeah. to stay above the waterline. Yeah. That's quite a lot. Mm. Yeah, they're li living in really low-lying areas. It's part of the land tenure system too. People come from the outer islands, try to move to the main mm. islands, and they're in these sort of fringe areas. And so you can really notice the impact it's having on their lives, um, especially when your land area is particularly small. When you mm. lose a small portion of that, the impact is quite severe mm. on, on these villages and these communities. Back to the lasers for a moment, if we might. <laughs> um, so, so just, I mean, just for people's knowledge, the um, the the one up around a thousand nanometers is similar to what we use in our telecommunication system, whereas the the other one, which goes through water, is is essentially blue or a very deep mm. blue color. Mm. With with that, the latter one, mm. does that allow you to map the so the surrounding structure of the island and how fast you drop off the continental shelf, or if, or depending on where you are, you don't even have that. So, you know, does that impact the, the potential dangers to these islands as well? I mean, does that feature in, in the maps? Uh, absolutely. Those lasers penetrate down to about 70 metres depth. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the fringe reefs in these areas are very important, particularly mm. around storm surges and that sort of thing. They provide a lot of protection to the community. So they want to monitor those and the existence of those. They can also look at sediment and sand shifting across those islands, where it's building up. Um, where they're losing it, where the erosion's sort of happening, how much sand is offshore, being drawn offshore and that sort of mm. thing too. So how often do you do these maps, given what is occurring at the moment, given these changes and concerns over reefs and so forth, how often do you do these maps to keep things up to date for, for the people in these countries? At the moment, it's just a once-off. So, right. yeah, I, I would see the, these surveys, though, as extremely important because they provide baseline information. Mm. So even if you go 100 years in the future, you can still look back at what these islands would have looked like at this point in time when mm. they were flown. So it, it's important to do that. But, um, 
because of the costs associated with it, you don't tend to do it that frequently unless an area is particularly uh, susceptible to sea level rise or erosion. And those sorts of Maybe things. you could get the US to fund you if you also just did a couple of flybys around some newly created islands off the coast of China. Uh, <laughs> you know, pop that into the mix and they <laughs> might give you all the money you need. Um, well, it sounds like something that we should do every year and, and keep um, keep that data up to date so that we can watch the changes. And yeah, I would have thought that would be a really useful thing to add to mm. the whole, you know, the whole Climate modelling, but also data. just impact modelling. Um, to, to have that extra data would be, I would feel, very useful. Mm. Oh, definitely. I mean, the, we've mapped a lot of uh, the coast of Australia too. We're, mm -hmm. we're just releasing through open source a, a 3D coastal map um, from Cooktown through to Adelaide. Hello. Well, um, it, it's huge for the for the coast of Australia. So that'll be a detailed model of, of, of the Australian coast. But we, yeah, we could fly up, refly certain areas along the Victorian coast, for instance, uh, Port Ferry. It, um, also, our lakes interest has a lot of sand dunes yeah, if you yeah. have dune erosion mm, that, mm. that occurs there. Plus, Sydney, um, you would fly possibly on multiple occasions with the amount of uh, shorefront property there. Mm. Did you get to go up in the plains? I did once, oh. and I got stuck there for seven hours doing lap support, Philip Bay. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that exciting after the first two hours. Port Phillip Bay is not that big. <laughs> you mapped it pretty extensively. Can I ask a quick stupid question? Um, if is it possible um, to okay? F forgive the the simplicity of this. Is it possible to attach um, your your mapping equipment, your, your lidar stuff? to any aeroplane. Could this be something you put on planes leaving Sydney Airport and just gather the data as they're flying anyway? Oh, potentially. <laughs> I mean, you could... You'd a lot have of planes. To, you'd have to automate the whole system and the yes. processing. and whatnot. Mm. But, yeah, if you had a platform, in theory, you okay. could... But drones are a big thing that sure. come in. UA, or UAVs in the industry because it's less <laughs> yeah. scary than drones <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, are, are coming out. And they're putting these sort of systems on there too. So a lower-cost initiative to do some mm. of this mapping as well. And, and just finally, Nathan, when, when you look into these maps and you have a look, I mean, we all, we've all had a look on Google Maps and see whether mm. or not we can see ourselves in our own backyards and stuff, or at least I did. Chris probably did. Um, I didn't see you. A lot of naked <laughs> Sunbaking. Um, how small can you see? So you're talking about the one at the coast of Australia. I mean, what's this? Will I be able to look and see where there are certain shipwrecks and so forth for diving and things of that nature, or is it not that fine grained? Yeah. So I mean, the lidar, as opposed to imagery, where you can visually see what's yeah. going mm. on there, it's just millions of books. So it's, you see shapes. You sure. don't actually yeah. always yeah. tell. Um, what it is, but yeah, you can't can pick up ship, shipwrecks. I was when I was working for the state government a number of years ago. Now um, we located around six um, unrecognised shipwrecks wow. along the Victorian coast. Cool. Mm. Um, not sure cool. if anyone's done anything with them since. <laughs> oh, very cool stuff, Nathan. Thanks so much for coming in and talking about this, and congratulations again on winning the United Nations uh, Lighthouse Award. That's quite an accolade for for us here in Australia. We're very proud of that. And um, continue the good work because I think um, the, the more often this mapping is done and the more accurate it's done, um, it will be very important for some of these island nations over the, the coming probably, well, I used to say 50 to 100 years, but it's probably a yeah, lot about, less than yeah, that, now. as in like yeah. next week. Yeah. Um, so keep up the good work and um, maybe we'll check in with you in a few months or something and see how it's going. Thank you very much. It's been terrific. Cheers. Nathan Quadro is from the CRC for Spatial Information. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Dr Crystal was about to tell me something important. I was just going to say, do you know what I love about Melbourne? What's that? Uh, having a barista who not only makes your coffee but gives you an update on what NASA's doing. <laughs> nice. Really good. Yep. I, I think I saw that on your thing during the week. That yeah. Is, that is pretty I mean, cool, actually. The, the, uh, the uh, level of science news uh, from my local um, coffee vendor in 
Flinders Lane at Tom Thumb is uh, very yeah. high. We go in there and chat science over the beans. I bet all the quality of your coffee is extremely good from a science communicator. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I, uh, <laughs> uh, you've given me one reason to go back to drinking coffee. So, um, so he was telling me about um, NASA's update on Mars, but Dr Shane, I suspect you might be able to give us a bit more information. Yeah, just a, a little bit of info. So this is the um, the stuff that's coming out of the MAVEN mission, which is the Mars Atmosphere. It's amazing how you can get an acronym from almost anything. The Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution. MAVE? Yeah, M. A, and they grab the V from Volatile. We'll grab an E from Evolution and we'll grab the N from the end of it. Yep, Maven. Sounds good. Um, Genius. <laughs> they're NASA. <laughs> but uh, look, there's been a long-held belief um, that, you know, potentially the CO2 that was part of, you know, a CO2-rich atmosphere that Mars once had billions of years ago may have gone down and just been ended up uh, below the ground and, you know, maybe one day, you know, science fiction writers for a long time, hey, yes. we'll just get that crap out and we'll terraform this planet and we'll give it an atmosphere again. It'll be cool because the atmosphere uh, is very low, um, very, very low pressure on Mars, which will make any sort of habitation there quite difficult. Um Unfortunately, it looks like most of the CO2 is not still on the planet, but it has actually been ripped off. Now, one of the things to remember with Mars is that it doesn't have a magnetic field. So unlike the Earth, it has this amazing magnetic field which protects us from the solar wind, from the sun, which is, you know, all these nasty little things coming from the sun that can cause all sorts of damage. Mars doesn't have that field to protect itself. Is it that... collapsed a long time ago. Oh, it's not, not because it doesn't have like a core made of the same things as Earth? Or? Well, well, it, it probably has similar materials, but the, the moving materials, so this, this electromagnet that you have in the Earth doesn't exist on Mars. And so as a result of that, the protection is not there. And these particles have, according to the, the Maven spacecraft, been slowly but surely being torn off essentially and just spat out into space behind, uh, behind Mars. So that atmosphere is gone and is not coming back. Now, that's not to say there isn't a lot of material on Mars that might be of interest in terms of, you know, possibly terraforming and mm -hmm. doing something of that type. We know we've seen reports of liquid water of late. There's obviously a lot of CO2 and um, water at the polar ice caps mm -hmm. of, of Mars. So there's a lot of material there, but the vast bulk of CO2 seems to, or bulk of the atmosphere, seems to have just been ripped off. Is there, is there any uh, indication as to when that happened? Uh, probably a long, long time ago um, because the magnetic field um, shut down about 4.2 billion years ago. Okay. And so it would have started happening then. Yeah. And continues to this day. I mean, we can we can see some of this now, but um, it's it's yeah, it's long gone. So, oh. but even though, but Mars is still an incredibly dynamic planet. And we're seeing a lot of those things as from the Curiosity rover, of course. So, the sooner we get boots on Mars, the better. I say. <laughs> is that the way to say it? Yeah, a uh, non-robotic mission as soon as possible, or at least a robot with boots on. Yeah, well, you know, apparently we're going to do this by twenty thirty. I'm not getting any younger. Hurry up, NASA. I want to see this happen. Anyway, we're, we're almost out of time. It's a bit sad, actually. Thank goodness you've been here today, Dr. Ristel. Correct my stupidity earlier. <laughs> I'm here to uh, ask for evidence and to keep the conversation on track. And I was doing the story on evidence and I... Anyway, yeah, so interrogating, um, yeah. I know. It was, uh, it was good. Love a good smackdown. You've got to say something stupid once a year, I say. Otherwise, you're not, you're not in it to win it. I do it all the time. Be on the risky side. Well... <laughs> 
See? You just did it again. Uh, anyway. And, and had some great guests today. It's always good to hear from a CRC, a cooperative research centre. They're yes. such amazing uh, centres. And the, the CRC for spatial information was they fantastic are. to they hear are. about the mapping that they're doing. They're very cool. And they're doing some good things and have been involved in CRCs over the years myself. And they usually bring together an incredible diversity of programs and people, which is why they do so well. The majority of them, not all, but the majority of them do extremely well for this country. Anyway, you've been listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3RRR. A big thank you to Dr. Crystal and Chris KP. And for Liv, who's been doing our Twitter feed, and remember you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and now apparently Periscope. Chris KP has infected us with this new video streaming technology, um, which is a bit addictive. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, until next time we chat, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic day. The sun was shining when we came in, and I think it's still going to be shining when we go out. So have a great Sunday, and we'll leave you with the team from Eat It. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.